As a rogue, it's easy for me to spot the perfect mark. I get anything I want with a little distraction and patience. But as a role player, screw patience. I can't wait for my Dungeon Crate to arrive every month. Dungeon Crate brings me amazing RPG accessories like dice, minis, adventures, and lots more. And rumor has it around the guild, you also get a digital crate with even more secret extras. Dungeon Crate has what I want. Take what you deserve and become a member of Dungeon Crate today at DungeonCrate.com. I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix and Book Club. This week, we are on episode 56 on Paul Anderson's The Broken Sword. My name is Jeff, and with me today is that soulless changeling, Hoy. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> And also today, we've got a killer DCC RPG judge and a contributor to the most recent DCC RPG tournament, Tim DeShane. Hello, everyone. Hi, Tim. <laughs> hey, Tim. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I feel kind of like an imposter. Like, you know, I'm, I, I kind of was thinking about how Dave Beatty used to feel when he was on Sanctum and he was like, <laughs> Who am I to talk about these books? But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you you're on here before Brendan LaSalle's even on here. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah, yeah, so you got some you got some bragging rights. Yeah, I do. We Another need to get, we need to get Brendan on the show. Yes. <laughs> you moved away. Brendan moved away. I'm all by myself now. Just me and Brian Cora Munch and keeping it real in New England. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So uh Tim, we're gonna go ahead and ask you our standard intro questions. Uh yep. how did you get into gaming? And how did you find your way to the Appendix N? So I got into gaming uh, thanks to some rainy days at camp. I went to like this swim club slash swim team camp when I was probably 11. It was probably I think it was the summer before my 12th birthday. And some old friends, actually like our, our moms were best friends growing up. And then her sons and I became really close. And they brought in the Beckme box one day. And we spent some rainy days in the locker room just playing some red box stuff and from there and it was right before second edition came out so i never actually played a d and d except for second edition so i had made the jump to that the appendix n never really was a thing to me until i started playing dcc um Mm -hmm. because i don't recall there being like an appendix n in the second edition dmg Mm -hmm. um i don't think there was yeah were you reading fiction and science fiction and fantasy a lot though or yeah so i grew up I was a pretty voracious reader as a kid. Um, it started off with mythology, going to the library and getting like Greek mythology books and reading like kind of uh, retellings of Hercules stories and Kukulin and cattle raid stuff and Norse mythology. And then from there, I became more of like a horror. I was into like Stephen King was probably like my first adult right, writer right. to ever read. And then it was actually through him that I got into Lovecraft, which is, I guess, maybe... And even though Lovecraft is a king influence, it makes sense, you know, growing up in modern times that I discovered an older writer through Stephen King. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you, and, you, do, you do live in the Northeast. It's Lovecraft and King country, right? Yes, very much so. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And as far as fantasy stuff, I wasn't a huge, like, actual fantasy reader. Um, 
I supplemented my time not playing D&D because I had lost that original group. And while I was trying to find a new group, my only way to kind of get into D&D was to make characters by myself and to read like Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman stories and <laughs> Ravenloft, you know, stories. So that was kind of like my first. I didn't grow up reading The Hobbit. I think I didn't read that until I was in high school. Okay. Um, same thing with Lord of the Rings. So mm-hmm. really my introduction to like the fantasy side of the Appendix N came through DCC. Mm. Um, now, once you saw the appendix in, and you were and you were taking a look at that list, were there was there anything else on the list that you had already kind of ex- experimented with a little bit? Like, had you read any Conan before looking at that list? Or so I had read. I hadn't read a lot of Howard Conan. Mm-hmm. I had read some like Lynn Carter stuff, and obviously like some of the Marvel and Dark Horse reinterpretations and graphic novels of Conan. Um, okay, but I hadn't really started to try and read the actual real like core stuff until yeah until finally like looking at it and going back and being like oh yeah like um robert jordan wasn't the original author of conan you know it was actually (laughs) this other guy you know um very much so yeah and once you started exploring that list and reading books from it because i know you've read a a great deal of appendix and at this point uh what are some of what are some of your favorite things you've discovered and were there any that you've read that you're just like oh i it's a good mixture of both. Um, yeah. <laughs> I really, really, really like um, Liber and Lankmar. That was probably the biggest thing for me to like take away from getting into Appendix N. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of Paul Anderson stuff I love very, very much, which is why I asked when you were like, hey, which one do you want to talk about? Like, I really wanted to talk about this book. Um, I have a problem, and I know I might get blacklisted from the Appendix N community, but I have a, I have a hard time reading Howard. Um, uh-huh. That's kind of on the hook side for me. Because yeah. um, it just kind of, a lot of it is it seems very prepubescent kind of wish fulfillment. Uh-huh. And I realized that my love of Conan comes more from the comic books and from Frazetta's art more than Howard's writing, I think. So, okay. yeah, I think trying to read those stories through a modern lens can be tough sometimes just because of when they were written and the sensibilities, you know, have changed so much. Yeah. Um, right. But as far as the actual subject matter of the fantasy and kind of the themes, um, and just the, the prose and the writing, yeah, it just, I would say it's imagination fuel and that's the biggest takeaway from it. Sure. Awesome. Well, so the book we are discussing today is Paul Anderson's The Broken Sword. And I understand that there are two different versions of the text here that are available. So let's start by talking about which version of the book we're working with. I have the 1971 uh, uh, Ballantine adult fantasy paperback, which is the revised language from um, from the seventies. Uh, which one are you working with, Tim? I uh, so I don't actually have um, a paperback of it, which is unfortunate because I love collecting paperbacks for the art. Um, mm. I'll probably have to hit Joseph up next Gen Con to see if he has a copy at the booth. Um, I'm actually reading the Kindle version, which says it's the original text from the fifties. Great. And how about you, Hoy? I read the 1954 version last year, and I am almost finished with the same one that you're reading, the Ballantine. Um, and actually, I slowed myself down because I was reading here, and then I would refer to the electronic version just to see, or certain passages, like I say, I have a feeling this passage is different in the other one. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. And so um, that's where I'm at. So I have the Ballantine one. I know there was a later Ballantine one with like a Boris Vallejo cover with you know the typical oily muscles and you know stuff like that too, but 
I think neither, none of us have that one today. So mm. This cover is pretty cool, though. We've got yeah. our elf with the pointy ear, which I'm guessing is Emmerich, and we've got mm. his little dwarven slaves behind mm. him. Um, and then when you open it up full and you kind of you kind of see the back page kind of around the corner, there appears to be some kind of a little scared goblin hiding behind a skull mm. or something. That's cool. Same, I think this is the same guy who did the cover for uh, the um, Zothik. Uh, uh, oh, it's yeah. George Barge. George yeah. Barge, the guy who did that? Yeah, I think it's the Zothik cover from the uh, Ballantine. Cool. Yeah. Which is also the cover of a uh, Blood Ceremony album. <laughs> there you go. Nice. Emmerich <laughs> doesn't have his long mustache on this cover, though. Oh, that's true. Yeah. All right. So before we start chatting about what we thought about the book, let's quickly look at our Hygaxian word of the day. Bernie. Bernie. And uh, no, this isn't uh, Bernie Sanders. Um, <laughs> Bernie is a word that is used a ton in this book, and it's B-Y-R-N-I-E. And it means a coat of mail or a hauberk. And there are so many places this word pops up. But the first place I noticed it was on page eight. He says, his Bernie clinked in the stillness. And then on page 11, it says... Many lords of Alfheim came to the naming feast, and they brought goodly gifts, cunningly wrought goblets and rings, dwarf-forged weapons, burnies and helms of sh- helms and shields, clothing, and blah, blah. It just goes on to list more things. But yeah, so a burnie is a coat of mail or a hauberk. All right, so we're now in the library, and we're chatting about Paul Anderson's The Broken Sword. Uh, Tim, what do you think about this book? Oh, man, I love this book so much. It is probably one of the first Appendix N books I went to after discovering the Appendix N through DCC. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, before I had read this, I read way back, maybe towards it first came out, um, uh, Neil Gaiman's American Gods. And it had a very similar thematic feel for me and sensibility yeah. um, in the sense that you have all these old folklores and mythologies suffering under kind of a an approaching you know, doom based on, uh, you know, in, in Gaiman's story, it's it's kind of like the New World American, you know, gods. And in this, it's, it's the white Christ is kind of like displacing a bunch of... Um, right. It's definitely like the, the anti- yeah, right. change of an e- a change of era. It's the end of something, the beginning of something else. But we don't even know what that future is that's taking shape yet. Yeah, yeah. and like coming from the fact that like what kind of spawned my love of reading was growing up reading mythology. It has all of that. Like all of my favorite mythologies are actual characters and things that you can they, they interact with in the story. Um, and it's just yeah, it's just kind of like a. It's, it's very like young adult when I reread it again. I'm like, oh, yeah, this, I can see how this is. It's not hard to read. It's not really long. Um, it has kind of a young adult feel, but it just has like a nice magic about it. Right, right. Mm-hmm. It's a very, um, uh, yeah, and, and that emotionality that YA sometimes has, right? Yeah. Uh, of, of the people just feeling these passions that are, are larger than life. So. And this is one of the three books specifically cited by Gary Gygax to read by Paul Anderson. Have you read the other two, Three Hearts and Three Lions and The High Crusade? I have read The High Crusade. I have not yet read uh, Three Hearts and Three Lions. I do have a copy of that waiting to for me to break into. Um, my biggest enemy right now is my little bit of reading ADD and the fact that I'm an old man. And when I read, I have like reading-induced narcolepsy. So like, all, <laughs> these, all these books that I want to tear into that... I either end up reading like 
a half of them and I start another one or I've been falling asleep through. Yeah. So right. I haven't got, I haven't read three hearts, three lines yet. Right. Right. How do you yeah. feel about the broken sword as compared to the, the high crusade? The high crusade is definitely more my speed. Now I think if I had read that when I first started playing D and would have been not all about it because of the mix of sci- sci-fi and fantasy. Um, but now like being like a huge, also like a Sonic Swordsman and Sorcerer's Hyperborea fan and, and throwing in a lot of sci-fi and having like a spaceship show up in, you know, medieval times is definitely like my cup of tea. Um, yeah. yeah and they have like this, you know, broken sword is very mythological and very old world and, and, and Norse feeling. And it's a very different tone from the high crusade. Yeah. Yeah. The high crusade is almost farcical. Right. Yeah. Right. This is quite possibly the most doom laden book we've read outside of maybe the Elric books, which in fact we can talk about in a bit about yeah. how much how much of an influence we think this is on the Elric books. So. Yeah, I remember reading um you know reviews from Michael Moorcock and how he compared it to Lord of the Rings and kind of like I think you know he said something like it knocked it off its some or like knocked it into a hat or something like that or something like paraphrase. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, it definitely has like even though this and the Lord of the Rings share a common kind of foundation for mythology, you know, that's a much brighter and happier book where this is like, you know, it's Ragnarok and it's doom and gloom. And mm-hmm. yeah. Um, and good and evil are pretty clearly defined in Tolkien's worldview and in his literature. And there is a lot of moral gray in this area yes. here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, right off the bat, like even though Imric is kind of the, the first elf we meet, and is the protagonist's you know stepfather he's a pretty vile per you know if you think about what he's doing he's you know he steals a baby right um in order to make the changeling he has to do something pretty gross you know and uh, you know his ritual is not for, like pg rated you know right, right, um right. so it's there it's very much sets them up to be very fey and very elfin according to mythologies where they're like they're not really friends to humanity yeah they're very very alien and hoy what did you think of the broken sword I, I really liked it because I was, you know, when we had read the other two Paul Anderson books, I mean, I liked um, I liked uh, High Crusade, but I did find um, Three Hearts and Three Lines ultimately a little shallow. I mean, it was enjoyable. And, you know, High Crusade, again, was a little lightweight. So I was not expecting this depth of feeling from Paul Anderson. Yeah. And, and, and Paul Anderson seemed to me a little bit... Um, you know, he was a physicist by training. He, he always seemed to be a little bit, I don't know which one is the rational brain, but the left brain kind of writer, mm-hmm. I guess. And so it was really interesting to see me, for me to see this book that's so dark and emotional and passionate um, from him. And and maybe he didn't, and this is actually interesting because we're talking about the editions. Maybe he he didn't feel that was a natural part of him. That's that, And that's why he had to revisit it in 1971 and rewrite so much of it. I mean, it's still the same plot, but if you look at the language, it's quite different in, in a lot of places. Yeah. It is. And in the edition that I have, I did read the Paul Anderson introduction. And one of the things that's interesting is he talks about how when he reads The Broken Sword, he feels like he's reading something written by a different author. Uh, he feels like he is a really different person than he was when he wrote that story. And having read Three Hearts and Three Lions and The High Crusade, I'm more interested in this person than right. that person <laughs> yes. as an author. <laughs> 1950s Paul Anderson, yes, I do think is more interesting than 1971 Paul Anderson. Yeah, I think when I, when I was doing some research um, online, you know, a lot of the reviews of, from several different places say like this, the, the original version is the one to read. 
Yeah. And in the introduction, he does talk about how he doesn't change too much in his rewriting. Maybe we'll disagree with that, but he he says that he doesn't. He says that although he feels like he has changed a lot as a writer, he didn't want to he didn't want to change the tone or the premise of what he was exploring in The Broken Sword. He just wanted to kind of clean up the language and make it a little bit more precise. And um, he, he feels like he's improved as an author. I uh, just kind of wanted to clean up the language. And I don't mean clean as in like, as in not dirty. I just mean clean as in like, make it a little bit more writerly. Right, right. Sure. I, I feel to some extent that happened, but I also feel that to some extent he lost the initial sort of charged impulse of the original of the original text. It's kind of like the Moorcock, uh, you know, when you read the first Elric story, you can tell that's like a 17-year-old, 21-year-old, angry young man writing that. Mm-hmm. And, and it's perfect, right? It's, it's even for its flaws, it's perfect, right? And I felt the same way. I don't know what was going through Paul Anderson's life, you know, when he was 25, 26, when he wrote it in 1955. You know, but that man, that angry, that is, that guy's more in line with like Valgard, maybe, right? Mm-hmm. Like the Valgard is, is something that's coming out of him. Right. Yeah. Um, and Valgard is the changeling. Uh, Scaflock is his, the original. Right. So, right. Yeah. So, um, so I think that, that there's something to that. And it's not that there's, it's drastically different. I mean, I haven't gotten to all the way to the end of the revised version yet, but I do think the 1955 one or 54 one is much more poetic. Also. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Cause I've, I've only so far read the, the rewritten one and I, I really enjoyed it a lot. And what you're saying kind of reminds me, and what he was saying as well in his introduction, it reminds me of this John Waters quote where um, John Waters was being asked about why he was making movies like Hairspray and why his movies had uh, become so much tamer as he got as he got older. And he said, well, I can't be an angry young man for my whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I feel like there is something to that. There is some kind of an, an angst that kind of comes with youth that I think really comes through in, in, in what, what's going on in this story in a very kind of potent and vital way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is probably one of my top five, uh, maybe not top five, definitely top 10 out of the ones that we've re- read so far. Same. Uh, yeah. Yeah, same. Definitely my top 10 as well. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> so I tried to start, you, you inspired me, Jeff, um, before you had moved when you, when you kind of started the Appendix and Book Club. Mm-hmm. Um, and you would talk about it on G plus and stuff. So I try to do something similar with my friends here, you know, in Rhode Island and those that live, you know, a few States away. And this was the book I picked for our first one cool. to do together. And it just fell apart. We never, you know, we never met and we never really got a chance to talk about it. So yeah, yeah. that's a bummer. Yeah. Cool. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, it's, I'm glad that we're all digging on this book. Um, yeah, it is interesting because I do feel like when you compare it to his other works, there is something about Three Hearts and Three Lions that feels a little pedestrian, feels a little safe, um, is kind of lacking that depth. And this one is, it's it's brutal, it's um, powerful, and it's really exploring a lot of interesting themes. Like one of the things that I think is kind of interesting too is it seems to kind of explore the idea of nature versus nurture in an interesting way as well. You know, mm-hmm. here we have a human who is raised as an elf and we have a changeling who is raised as a human. And initially, Scaflock in Elfland, um, he very much takes the elven way of life and he really excels there. 
and it's it ends up becoming pretty difficult for him to kind of come back to the land of men and to kind of learn how humans think. And with Valgard, here we have somebody who really is from the very beginning just a rotten, vicious little monster um, who's raised in the land of humans. But as we kind of progress with him and he gets older, he does kind of have some softer, tender moments. And he it does seem as though his human upbringing did have some influence on who he became. Right, right. He has those moments of of guilt that he doesn't even understand the concept of guilt, but he, he's feeling it. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, you know, sometimes when he, there's that moment when he's sleeping, when when um, Scaflock sneaks into the castle and he's not lying next to Leah and he's like murmuring and he's wondering if he's killed his mother, his human yeah. mother. Um, and he's wondering whether he should cast away this axe, you know, a brother slayer. And he says, no, it's a good axe. (laughs) 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 Um, yeah, yeah, no, the, uh, nature versus nurture. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff about, um, uh, accommodating power. Like Leah realizes the, the elven queen or the sister of Emmerich. Um, she is, she realized that, you know, her, physical power will never be the match for Valgard and the trolls and but she has the the intellectual and sexual wiles to sort of wear them down from the inside mm-hmm. um but she's kind of an amoral slightly vicious character in her own way but she's yeah. you know, well drawn um Frida at first we think she's kind of a simpleton right she's just sort of the the love interest but she actually has a lot going on under underneath also too so i think that um there is a lot going on in, at multiple levels with all the characters. And actually, it's interesting that Scaflock is deliberately designed to be sort of um, non-self-reflective, right? He's a fa- he's fa- the elves don't really sel- aren't really self-reflective, right? He's, he's fae, right? Sure, and they don't have a soul. Right. I like how, like, when, you know, we're reading again, you know, Scaflock kind of has that Mary Sue, um, you know, he's better, at the, he's better than the elves at being an elf, right, almost yeah. as good. You know, he's an amazing archer, and he can do all this... Um, all, all of his magic is super powerful. Um, He's great at elven lovemaking and yeah. elven wrestling. And- <laughs> but in the you know, in the end, it's not enough to save him though. You know, like I'm used to those kind of stories in like Conan, where like yeah, he's good at everything and he's kind of always good at everything. Um, right. Where in this, like yeah, Scaflock's good at everything, but it's not enough, you know, to, to save him in the end. Right. Right. Yeah, and he is good at everything, but he's he also struggles with some stuff too. I, I love the moment where he walks up to the Raven. And he says, "What news do you have of me for the for the war?" Uh, for, um, and the Raven's like, "Oh yeah, the the elves are losing that war bad, and we're pecking upon their flesh, and mm, it's delicious." <laughs> and you know, he gets really upset by that, and he just puts an arrow right through the Raven. And as soon as he does, he apologizes to the bird, saying that was a, an impulsive act, and he right. feels terrible about it and goes off and cries. Right. So it's like even somebody who. Um, who is supposedly this like kind of, you know, person who can accomplish anything he wants. He makes, he makes mistakes and he regrets his choices. Um, and he grows and changes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As you were, uh, you know, we're talking briefly in the book club, we do see this, or one of the guests was talking about, it, we do see the characters sort of leveling up in some ways. Right. And then, um, but also getting worn down. Right. And that's pretty key that they also get worn down a lot by what's happening to them. You know, Scaflock is this happy-go-lucky guy, and then he becomes increasingly grim. You know, the lines are in his face. Frida is, uh, you know, basically a teenage girl at the beginning of the story, you know, when we first encounter her. And then she becomes a woman with all the sorrows of knowing what life is, you know, going on. She's lost her entire family, but she sort of 
making an accommodation later on when she's with the human foster family, you know, after Scaflock leaves her behind. Mm-hmm. Or she, she, she actually, she leaves Scaflock. But so I, I think there's a lot going on for a very compact book because even in print, it's only like 206 pages, 207 pages. So yeah, the amount of stuff that's going on in this book is, is incredible. Right? Yeah. Nowadays, you'd need like 800 pages or even a trilogy to tell this story. So Oh, no doubt. Yeah. Now, Tim, did you read The King of Elfland's Daughter? I have, yes. I read it a while back. Um, and I first heard about uh, just Dunsany in general at the first Necronomicon in Providence. Okay. Um, I went to a panel um, that was about Lovecraft's influences and uh, Dunsany and the, and the King of Elfland's Daughter is like one of the first things they talk about. Um, so that... I would say that story combined with this are really what are the driving influences for me when I run games, when it comes okay. to like the mythology of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was funny because when I was reading this, I thought like I should go back and revisit it because a lot of the descriptions of like the Earl King and, you know, the King of Elfland kind of reminded me of Dunsany's descriptions, but I, I'm not exactly sure because I haven't read it in such a long time. Um, but it did definitely want me to go back and reread it. It is, it is very much like a dark mirror image of that story. And we also have this mighty sword that we have in the King of Elfland's daughter. Right. And, and there is fate and changelings, but this is literally the, the dark, the negative, the dark negative of that story in some ways. Yeah. 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 It's interesting. I feel like if you were to read the King of Elfland's daughter and then you would go right to the Elric books, you wouldn't necessarily see that much in common. But if you read The King of Elfland's Daughter and then The Broken Sword and then the Elric stories, it's amazing how much it seems um, Paul Anderson got from Dunsany and how much Moorcock got from Anderson from this. This really does feel like a bridge between the two works. Mm -hmm. And the fact that they're drawing on something very primal. I mean, Tolkien went in a different direction, but they are drawing on sort of the northern mythology, specifically Norse, but also other mythologies. and that it is uh, not just a novel. It is it is attempting to create something that uh, that um, we interact with at a sort of very primal mythological level, right? Yeah. And reading something like Three Hearts and Three Lions, I don't really feel like I saw a whole lot of character arc with um, with our Swan May or with Holger or with Holgi. Um, but reading. The Broken Sword, it's like the the characters of Valgard and Scaflock and Frida, they had these really fascinating character arcs. Like Frida starts off, as you were mentioning earlier, Hoy is kind of that traditional pulp damsel in distress. She's she's mm-hmm. pretty, she's meant to be loved. Um, she'll probably get kidnapped and you'll have to go chase her down and rescue her. Um, and then by the end of the story, she is like this fierce warrior woman who, um, when she ends up, um, uh, uh, but by, by the end of the book, she's like, she's had a child and she like, is like kind of like grisly and powerful. Um, and, and that is a character who we also occasionally see in the appendix end, but I feel like having her character go from this one into the other is something I haven't seen happen in the appendix end before. Mm-hmm. Right, right actually having an arc you would either see a frida character as the the young girl or the frida the warrior but never the in between exactly you never see that one character become the other mm-hmm. where that is a storyline you see quite a bit with male characters you see them given the opportunity to become great heroes mm-hmm. and it's kind of cool seeing frida's journey right right 
And I think actually when you mentioned heroes, many of the other stories, uh, especially in the appendix end, there's not a talk about the cost of heroism. This mm-hmm. is totally a story about the cost. Like he he could have Scaffold could have just said F it. Or you know, that's what Frida was trying to get him to do, right? F it. Forget about the fairies, come live as a human, you know, take the blessings of Christ upon yourself and be forgiven for everything and you know, you'll live out a long and happy life, right? Um, but he's like, nope, nope, nope. And then at every point, even the elves like, yeah, don't reforge the sword. You know, the Irish guys, like, don't do that. Don't do that. You know, it's much worse. It's better just to die a clean death in battle than, than, you know, get the sword and reforge it. Right. It's like, nope, nope. Got to do it. Right. Who cares? Got to go. Sure. And then the flip of that is when they find out their brother and sister, he's like, yeah, so what? Right. <laughs> <laughs> she's like, yeah, I don't think I want to have sex with you anymore. Right. <laughs> But yeah. because he like grew up with the elves, he's like, whatever. I mean, right. why why are you gonna let your why would you worship a god who would say that we shouldn't be together? Right. right. It's kind of his counter to, counter to that. <laughs> Super persuasive. Right, right. <laughs> right. You got a square, man. <laughs> exactly. We elves, we're not worried about that kind of stuff. <laughs> um you know yeah, what scene I, mean, I loved though? I loved the scene where Leah uh, shows up to um, Frida when Frida is still kind of the damsel in distress character, and you know Skeflock is off fighting the wars, and Leah walks in with her knife, and she's like, "You know, he's not coming back. He's going to die. We're all basically going to be raped by trolls." Um, I know you can't kill yourself because your dumb God won't let you do it. But if you want to, I can kill you. <laughs> want me to kill you? I, I, I have a knife. <laughs> yeah. I, I loved that scene. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Leah is a really interesting character. Again, one of the, the dark women, the sort of film noir femme fatale that yeah. we see a lot in this appendix. End. But she has, I know, she is one of the characters that does have self-awareness in this mm-hmm. book, right? And, and has agency, even when she is, you know, essentially a thrall of the trolls who have taken over the elven kingdom. She is still working her schemes, doing her thing, you know, hoping to take her vengeance. Yeah. Um, and, and that she does is capable of love. She does love, uh, scaff and, and, um, but in her way, not in a way that we would understand sure. as a positive force, <laughs> but it's potentially in the way that like a narcissist loves their child. Right. You know, they love them as an extension of themselves and what they think right. it means for them. Right. And which, in fact, I think she has actually at the beginning, right. She actually nurses Scaflock when he's first as changeling. Right. I think so. That's true. You know, yeah. That's a good all, point. All sorts of, uh, psycho, psycho geography, psycho, whatever that you could layer on to this book again for such a short book. It's really amazing. So, well, and because their lives are so long too, they also mention how like, it seems like only yesterday, like almost literally o- only yesterday, she was nursing him. Right. And now, th- now they're lovers. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the, and that, that builds on that whole mythological element and, and the whole, the incest that's like, that's like Oedipus. And you're like, you know, this doom that the characters, none of these characters chose these things. These all things happened to them before they were even born. Right. But sure. they will still play out the way that they will play out. So transitioning this over to the gaming side of the conversation, uh, Tim, when you said that this really inspires your gaming, do you specifically mean themes of incest? Um, unfortunately not, but maybe now, okay. maybe after this, I will, okay, okay. I will adopt that. No, <laughs> then, then what do you mean by that? <laughs> so I mean, I would say based on how I, how I 
kind of, I don't do a lot of world building, so to say. I, I don't really do a lot of stuff that players are never going to see. Um, but when I kind of create the mythologies for the characters, I would say that um, the treatment of, of the, the demi-humans, so to speak, in this are kind of how I treat them in my D&D and DCC. More so DCC games because they kind of, it really helps um, just that they're treated weirder than they are in like, at least in current D and D, you know, mm-hmm. so it's really easy to make them strange and not just, you know, humans with pointy ears. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so like this, uh, I mean, it doesn't, it helps that there is actually a patron called the King of Elfland in, in DCC. So like when I'm pulling from Dunsany or, um, or Anderson, like I can really get into that vibe of these creatures are not, normal they're alien they have like more of like an elemental kind of aspect than they do any kind of human soul mm-hmm. um and just yeah like that fairy is kind of a place that is a shadow of our current world um it's you know it can be all around you but you don't have the car you don't have the ability or the witch site to see um you know the troll dens or the places where the dwarves live mm-hmm. um, and it's maybe like kind of go more into because in DCC, like they don't really talk about too much. You get, you get a little bit of um, of character building or or background for the races, as far as like you know, elves are allergic to iron and then naturally magical, but they don't really go too too far into it. It's a blank canvas for you as a as a GM to kind of do it yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's easier for me to say like, yeah, they, you know, in my world, the elves are like exiles from fairy. You know, mm-hmm. they're not just you're not going to walk into a tavern and there's going to be like an elven barkeeper. Right. So, you know, like they're definitely a lot weirder than that type thing. And I think that's a pretty good argument also for, you know, uh, racist class, right? That they are so alien that they don't have normal human occupations. So, you know, you know, he's not a elven, you know, thief or an elf, you know, they are just, they're, they are this thing. The elves are this or dwarves are this, right? Uh, I'm not saying that we want to play every game like that, but if you're playing a game, that's like this kind of dark fae kind of thing like that, right? That the, the elves in here have a lot more in common with each other, less diversity in that regard, right? Than say like the Tolkien elves, even who are, you know, um, more distinct in some ways, right? Yeah. So speaking of using Dungeon Crawl Classics for this, you know, all three of us are familiar with that rule set and play quite a bit. Now in Dungeon Crawl Classics, elves do have a sensitivity to iron. Um, in my opinion, it's one of the lamest rules in the book because they take one point of damage per day, but you also heal a point of damage per day. So it basically, it means literally nothing. Yeah, it's a wash. <laughs> it really is. So if you want to play up that iron sensitivity uh, for the for for weirdness sake, what would you do? Would you have it cause more damage? Would you have it be like it's literally something you just can't interact with? How, how would you work that in? Yeah, I've decided I haven't really implemented a strict house rule on it yet, but I agree that the, the whole one hit point thing is not really all that flavorful or even that big of a penalty. Um, right. So I've, I've toyed around with the idea of either the elven characters can't cast spells if they're in contact with the iron or their action dies reduced, you know, by one if they're using. Um, you know, if they, if they decide to be like, yeah, I want to use a sword. Well, now you're, everything you're doing is going to be with a D16 instead of a D20. Right. Um, I've thought about maybe even, I guess it would be kind of unbalancing in a way if you had all elven characters take double damage from iron, because then, you know, if you're in a game, that's everything's, everyone's using iron weapons. But I think right. that would yeah. be kind of, but it would it'd be kind of in the spirit of it, I guess. Right. Um, uh, even just giving one extra point of damage for an iron weapon, you know, given that the DCC characters tend to be, 
keep dealing out quite a lot of damage, but don't actually have that many hit points compared to, say, like an AD&D character, yeah. that would make a bit of a difference. Yeah. But yeah, I think if you if you treat it as a wash, you, you have to say that they can't heal the iron damage unless they're completely away from iron and not Yeah, here, right? exactly. Yeah. And I'd even say, because like, you know, I'm very much in the hit points as they were meant to be, like are, are an abstract of how good you are at avoiding a lethal blow during combat and then not so much wounds. Right. I'd actually rather see, you know, um, iron contact, maybe affect ability scores or do all the right. similar kind of penalty rather than just hit point, you know, penalty. Right, right. Right. Sure. And the nice thing about having it be, um, you have to roll a D16 on everything. Um, D16s never stop rolling, so they're super annoying. So nobody <laughs> wants to roll a D16 either. Right. <laughs> right, right. One thing that I thought was interesting is Paul Anderson actually refers to an elf as having pointed ears, which is not something Tolkien ever does. Right. And oftentimes, when I see elves and things, there's no mention of pointy ears. So it was, it was actually interesting to me to find something written in the 1950s, uh, pre Dungeons and Dragons, where elves do have pointy ears. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I do like is they can grow facial hair. I mean, right. elves, elves need that, that kind of badass uh, mustache, you know, right. or like the King of Elfland has got his wispy white beard. Right. It's got like a Fu Manchu. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, definitely. I think, um, and, and just the, the, then they have those weird blue inhuman eyes that have no pupils, no, no irises, just like the sort of feel the blue with little, I think he does describe the elves in three hearts and three lions a little bit like that. But again, they're not as sort of overtly menacing as the elves here. Right. But they're sort of in the same continuity of type of elf. So, Tim, I want to uh, posit a question to you. So the elves that you find in King of Elfland's Daughter and the Broken Sword do tend to, as Hoy just say, have kind of a more menacing presence. Um, do you feel like that style of elf, if you want to go fully in that direction, belongs in an adventuring party? Or is that or are those kinds of elves better suited as NPCs? I, th- I want to say my initial thought on that is they're better as NPCs. But I think with the right group um, and the people that can kind of play up that, you know, the, I think the worst thing you can do with any demi human character is just treat it like another human that just right. happens to have like a different culture. You know, like I really, I really like it if you can, and a player will kind of like embrace that weirdness. Um, and the other players also are on board with it as well. So they're not always like stealing the limelight, things like that. But um, yeah, making it so. I kind of feel the same way about wizards now too. Like the more and more I read, I'm almost like, oh man, I'd rather have wizards be like NPCs and spellcasting player characters are kind of like, they're not, it makes magic not as special in a way. But um, yeah, yeah, I think- we're rebel against that, but I get what you're saying. Right? Yeah. There's usually only one wizard per story, right? It's not like, oh, here's the wizard over here and this, here's, the, here's the other, unless it's like a story about a wizard and their apprentice. It's very rare that you have like, oh, here's a bunch of wizards and we're yeah. all hanging out, right? Yeah, but I think, yeah, you can definitely make it, you can make it work. Um, you know, one thing that Doug told me a long time ago when it comes to DCC was, uh, you know, the, the, the judge has to kind of be the, the straight man because the player characters are going to take it off the rails anyway. So it's kind of your job as, a, job as a judge, I think, to set the tone at least to kind of like build that kind of vibe and then let the players go, you know, and do their thing. But. And for those listening who don't know who Doug is, uh, <clears throat> Tim's referring to Doug Kovacs, who does most of the art for DCC. And has been around since the beginning. Uh, but yeah, I think that's a really great observation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've also got a witch here. 
Now, this witch from the Broken Sword, is she a wizard? Is she a magic user? Or is a witch its entirely own thing? I like to think that it's its entirely own thing. You know, she yeah. she gives me like the vibe and and uh, I reminisce a little bit about um, the witch in Doom of the Savage Kings. You know, they're mm. kind of their own weird hedge magician. Um, the one cool thing that I really like about the witch in this too is like she at one point seemed like she worshipped the Norse gods. She was like she would call out to the Aesir, and they yeah. didn't they didn't answer her. So then she ends up pretty much invoking Satan, you know. So it's a blend <laughs> of mythologies, right? Um, but then the, this this you know devil that comes to her also says at one point that he wore the visage of Loki. So it's kind of like that awesome um, patron magic thing, you know, right. that he bestows right. he, upon her. Right. He might be um, Narlathotep for all we know too. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. I and like also that. Oh, sorry. Yeah. No, I was gonna say yeah, definitely, and that's why I think in most of you know, I try and treat each wizard and each elf as an individual kind of example of something. And the same thing when they run across witches in game, you know, they're, you, you can't really codify them. They're not going to know what spell they're going to cast next. And, you know, they don't have the same kind of rules that a player character would. Right. And that's pretty explicit in DCC to, to do that. It's like, oh, you know, even in the human sections, like they actually have a witch back there. It says, no, it's not a magic user. Give them some spells or whatever, but it's not a, a DCC wizard. You can yeah. do whatever you want with this character. Um, and the other thing that you brought up was with the witch, and we were talking about this in the, in the book club. This is a major difference between the electronic version of the book, uh, the 1954 version of the book, and the 1971, which is that when she invokes Satan in the book, um, in the 1954 version, it is Satan both times, or Satanus. And, and he says that at one point he played the role of Loki. In the 1971 one, the first time she calls upon Satan, it's actually Odin in disguise. He's uh, trying to move his plans along. But when she calls upon him again, when she's been hunted down by a fire spear and the other elves, it, it is Satan who appears and says, oh, you were fooled by, you know, Odin. I don't need your soul. I'm going to have it anyway. Right. I don't, <laughs> you know, I don't need. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that is a pretty major difference. Um, I'm not sure exactly why, but I think he wanted to get back into that theme of, of like Norse doom. And so that Odin would have to be the instigator of that, not necessarily Satan. Because then you, because you have Satan, everything in Christianity talks about free will, right? So, so it's of free will that she aligns herself with the forces of darkness. Where here it was, she was pre-fated. It was her role to, you know, in this larger story, right? Yeah. So now that tension between Christianity and paganism, and Christianity and actual magic is something that we've seen with some regular occurrence in the appendix N, and I'm curious, why do you guys think that if it's such a prevalent thing in the source material, that it's not something that we really saw in the early versions of the game or in contemporary versions of the game? You know, I kind of think that it's probably, I think probably out of sensitivity. Um, you don't have, I mean, you might have people that identify as pagan now, but you really don't have large sloths of, you know, Odinists or like that, or people who are really, really like organized about religion. Right. But if you start throwing in, I mean, I'm fine with it doing it at my table, but like, I guess in a public setting to like kind of make um, current real world, major religions into like story right. stuff, it probably wouldn't sit well. Right. Especially right, right. during like the satanic panic back in the day. Right. And right. Even allowing for the pre-satanic panic. I mean, I believe, uh, again, I keep on forgetting what denomination Gary, uh, Gary Gygax was, but he was Christian. So maybe that was just like one step too close in terms of what he was comfortable doing in, you know, in a game. Right. 
Yeah. And, you know, in deities and demigods, one of the things that people often laugh about is that it's a, it's a bunch of uh, gods. And you just, it basically, it's just hit points for the gods to see how you can kill each of these gods. <laughs> right, right. So I, I, I think it would be, it would have been pretty controversial if, for example, the white Christ was a uh, bag of hit points that you could go ahead and beat <laughs> and uh, encounter and what? kill in a game. Wasn't he? Because didn't the Romans do that to him? Yeah. <laughs> fair, fair. <laughs> right. So I know. There there we go there we go we've just lost half our podcast audience no. <laughs> i know they're all they're all outraged right right but, unsubscribe uh, although i guess kind of uh in you know i haven't really dove into the forgotten realms lore but um i think el mater is kind of like a forgotten realms jesus in a way right they're kind of symbol they think that his el mater is symbol is a, a torture device mm-hmm. you know so it's kind of like an analog for christ oh uh, interesting um, kind of a pacifist god you know right. Just a little bit with the Isaac of the Jug and the DC, you know, and Lankmar, you know, he's being put on the rack and he's sort of a, 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 a minor, he's already a minor God, but it's, it has some parallels to, you know, the suffering of Christ on the cross and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Uh, um, I, I do like, you know, I, I grew up pretty in a pretty religious household. Um, I went to Catholic school for most of my education and it always interests me when I see real world religion interact or how would you make it interact? You know, like, I mean, I guess like at the same point, like it's, it's weird for me to say real world versus, you know, I think there's any like much difference besides like beliefs. Right. But well, I guess what we're seeing is contemporary current real world religions and how you know, the Christian myth fits along with like, like the Cthulhu mythos or anything else, you know. Uh-huh. Yeah, I guess it's a weird sensitivity though, because there were, people are free to put like Japanese mythology, and you know, people still are practice the Shinto religion, right, and practice the, you know, various Buddhist religions. But people feel free to put that into gaming material, and so maybe that's that sort of, um, you know, unintentional cultural appropriation. Like, oh, it's fine. It's just mythology. It's, it's mythology to us. It's actually real religion to those people who are living and practicing. But to us, it's mythology. And so, if you were doing a game in china and japan would they feel free it's like oh the christian mythology we can have that in our game yeah (laughs) yeah it's interesting i feel like i've not really seen buddhism as an example of something that you can play in these kinds of things but absolutely i've seen for example like the hindu gods put in there and those Mm -hmm. are things that are absolutely still worshipped today so maybe there's something about to the western mind if it's pantheistic it is therefore pagan and therefore of the past and therefore safe to use in gaming i'm not saying i actually agree with that i'm just saying that might be the psychology behind it Mm -hmm. where if it's something like buddhism it kind of falls into the same category of christianity where it's based on a person who supposedly actually existed and we're kind of worshiping a single entity yeah right I think, uh, yeah, we have the kind of a product too of of whoever's writing the games. And traditionally, you know, you have pretty much, you know, European or American white men who probably grew up in a Christian environment. So a lot of these religions are like are like very mad. It's like the magical other, you know, like it's yeah. it's not what we're used to. So you know, you see things like with um. I think it was with Numenera and Monty Cook. Like he had put, I think the th- maybe it was Thunderbird, or he had put some kind of Native American, right? Um, and that now being you know current day, he got a lot of backlash for it. And so I think maybe you know we're kind of still aping the tropes of of our um, those who have come before us and the founders mm-hmm. of the hobby. Right. Um, but maybe if it were written today, like fresh, it would be like a totally different mindset. Who knows? Right. And to bring up one of your bugbears, uh, Jeff. I mean, obviously the 
you know, I mean, you have the problem with clerics, and clerics are really pretty much explicitly sort of medieval Christian priests in, in, in as they are written in the rules, right? It's pretty hard to reconcile like a cleric with a um, a Hindu yogi or a Shinto priest, you know, in terms of like because they don't all ex- exhibit the same powers. Whereas the powers that are exhibited there are pretty much the power the cleric are pretty much the powers of the Catholic saints and priests had, right, <laughs> right, or have described of having in various texts, and so. It is in there, but it's an awkward fit. And again, a lot of people know, as we know, excise the cleric class entirely or mm-hmm. modify, shift the powers around. Um, so how do we handle that, you know, with um, both storytelling grace and then national sensitivity in our games is, is always an ongoing issue, I think. Well, I mean, I think the answer is really easy. You get rid of clerics and you have give them healing magic <laughs> all the time. And there, and and thank you because Hoy, I I know that you had to have been doing this as a segue so we could talk about all of the many examples of healing magic that we have in this book because <laughs> right. there are many, many, many examples of it. Yeah, right, right. And a lot of the magic, it, it's you know, it's very Norse because the, he mentions the runes quite a bit. You know, every time right. they do something, it's a it's runic magic. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, when Scaflock goes hunting and he hunts things that are much more powerful than him and he comes back, you know, on death's door and Im- right. and heal them using the runes. Right, right. Um and he carves he, the post for the runes when he summons up Orm and his family that you know that does the necromancy, he brings back their shades. Yeah. 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 Um now I have a question for you guys. One thing I really liked about the broken sword was witch sight. Mm-hmm. And how without witch sight, all of this kind of supernatural stuff you don't see and you don't really experience. Uh, but you can give somebody witch sight if you have witch sight. How would you feel about incorporating something like that into Dungeon Crawl Classics or um, um, Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea? I did something similar once when my uh, the group that we we're kind of on a hiatus right now, but our long term campaign they went to Elfland. It wasn't gifted upon them from someone with which site. I had to do more like you know it had to be a doom metal throwback, and it was through hallucinogens. You know they 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 were essentially drugged, and it, you know the path to Elfland was right in front of them. It just said they had that before they had taken the hallucinogens, they couldn't see. So I've done stuff like that. You know, like the um, facades might be like the, what they're actually hiding behind until you're able to kind of break through that illusion of what, you know, your, your brain is actually right. uh, telling you it is. Right. I think that's always the tricky thing with any of the role-playing games. Like, as you said, illusion, specifically like illusionist class, like what, how do we handle that? Especially adjudicating that. But I think it would be interesting to have characters, like, for example, they're in the environment. They can't interact with it, if, uh, especially effectively if they don't have witch sight, but on the reverse side, they also can't necessarily be harmed as easily if they don't have the witch sight. But as soon as you have the witch sight, it goes both ways, right? Now I can interact, but now these things can also see me and harm me and do things like that. Exactly. Uh, it's kind yeah. of uh, from beyondish, right? From from like beyond, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or or the hounds of Tindalos uh, for the yeah. Frank long story. So that kind of thing, like that. I it think reminds that was- me too of um, like like the early changeling, the dreaming. When I first when you know, I played that back in high school, like you if you if you didn't see the face seemings, yeah. it didn't you know you couldn't be hurt by a troll sword, but if you were able to see you know, their actual face self, then, you know, that sword could do, it could, well, I think it would do like psychic damage to you more than actual physical, but still like, that's how it, how it worked out. There you go. I love that you've actually played Changeling. I, I, I never had, uh, I picked up the book when it was new and it, and I, I never really played it. How would Changeling work for a story like this? There are a lot of similarities because the, you know, they have, they have the, the Fey world is kind of a butts 
you know, the real world. And it's more about the fact of being able to see it. And you have your seemings of like, you're, you know, day, by day, you might be a college student, but in truth, you're actually some she, you know, prince or whatever. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was hard coming from D and D to first wrap my brain around that when we first started playing it. Um, cause we're with vampire, which more straightforward. Um, but in, you know, in changeling, you're trying to balance these two worlds and like make sense of when something could be perceived and when not, and how to do that kind of stuff. But then once you kind of get, Oh yeah, it doesn't matter. You know, just however we feel like it works coolest. Um, but it has a lot of that, you know, there are secrets that are right in front of us, but we just can't see them. Right. right. Yeah. And I think uh, with these sort of parallel narratives and with illusion, um, it doesn't necessarily take it into the realm of story games, but it takes it into that realm of where you and the players sort of have to agree on the ground rules and the fiction that you're trying to emulate to a certain extent, which is not necessarily the case with sort of more traditional um, D&D, where it's like, okay, here's the world. You're going to go in. My job is to go in and pull all the gold out of this basement, right? And, and, and by hook or by crook, right? Whereas here's like, okay, I agree that I that I am, even though I as a player know that I'm in Sorcerer or know that this is an illusion, I agree that I'm going to play my character as they don't know that this is an illusion, right? Yeah. Rather than trying to hide from them that it's an illusion, which you might have to do in the old style games that, you know, where you say, oh, you're walking around, you don't see anything, right? So, um, and, and that takes a little bit more, I think, subtlety both on, on both sides, from the player and the gamer side to, to sort of do that and not sort of break suspension of disbelief. So, Tim, we are starting to run out of time, and I'm curious, is there any kind of last thing that you really wanted to chat about that we didn't get a chance to address yet? You know, on the tip of my tongue, no, nothing that I can think of. Um, you know, I just would like to reiterate to all the other GMs and players out there that stop making your demi-humans just humans with pointy ears and beards. I don't know. Nice. And... <laughs> you know drop the scottish dwarf go for more of a uh, all right norwegian sure. <laughs> <laughs> right and my last thing is i want to point out that at one one point we have wizard skis right so <laughs> I, and fafford has his skis right, in yeah. his uh introduction story so right. it, it inspires me i feel like there is some really goofy fun to be had with uh wizard skis right. in an adventure at some point <laughs> I like also the um, when um, Scaflock keeps on. He has the pelts and he has the wolf pelt, the oh, otter yeah. pelt, and but that when yes. he shape changes, he's not just Scaflock with wings. He's mm-hmm. got the eagles. He's at the eagles austere mindset, or the wolf starts not understanding things, and he knows that there's certain things he won't even be able to remember or express when he turns back into human form. And so to have shape changing, not just be like, oh, I, my, a stat change on your sheet. It's like okay, well, you know, certain things are gonna. You know, and as GM to describe things differently to players when their shape change, I think that would be really fascinating too. So, yeah, and I thought that it was really cool how the narrative wasn't like I'm dumber now that I'm an animal. It's just it's not that I'm any less intelligent; just my priorities and the way that I perceive the world have has has shifted. Right, right. And so I think that that is always an easy thing to overlook. It's just like, oh, okay, now I have the ability to squeeze through this hole or swim or do this or that. It's like, no, okay, now you're. Try to think of how you might describe the world if you were an otter, right? To this person, it's like, okay, right? You you still want to go find that sword, but as an otter, <laughs> you know, yeah. how you might go about it. <laughs> right? 
That's great. Awesome. Thank you, Hoy. So Tim, if folks want to find you on the social medias, how can they do that? So I'm on Facebook, uh, pretty sporadic. Well, I, I should say more often than not um, under just my name, Tim Deshane, which probably I'm sure you're going to spell it in the show notes. Um, I'm also on Instagram and Twitter as Tim Jong Illist, <laughs> uh, underscores in between each of the, uh, the names. Um, nice. And if anybody wants to sign up to play in a Tim Deshane game, I, I, if you're going to a convention, I have to say Tim is an incredible judge. He's so much fun. Sign up for one of his games. You you won't you won't. I almost said you won't recommend it. Uh, <laughs> you won't regret it. You won't regret it. <laughs> I wouldn't you recommend won't regret it. it. <laughs> no. Well, thank you, Jeff. Coming from you, that's a good honor because yeah. you know you're in that category as well. So yeah, awesome. Yeah. Thank you. All right, Hoy. So how can people get a hold of us? Sure, you can email us at appendix n uh, book club at gmail.com. We're on Twitter at, at appendix underscore N. We're also on MeWe, uh, Twitter and Facebook, I believe. Um, and Jeff, how about our Patreon? Yes. So if you would like to show your support for the show, please go to patreon.com slash appendix and book club. Uh, you can sign up for as little as a dollar a month and it makes a big difference. We really appreciate the support. I would also like to say that we had a great patron book club right before this. We had Adam Stiers and Gabriel Meister on, and we were chatting about the broken sword. It was an awesome conversation. The good news is that when you do the patron book club with us, we do record it and post it to the Patreon so that you can listen to it later. The bad news is I fucked that recording up this time and (laughs) that one is not going to be available. So I'm really sorry, Adam and Gabriel. Um, The settings on my end for the patron book club and for the um, actual show are quite different. And it's a, it's a long, annoying story, but after basically the short, short version is after we finished, I listened to it and it only recorded my audio. So I'm sorry. You should totally post that. Post that and just use talking to yourself. That's awesome. That's the, that's the the elf land edition of the episode. All the other hearing in order to to hear. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, But I would like to give a shout out uh, to a few of our patrons, Noah Green, Robbie Fioto, Stanley Raduski, Peter Martino, uh, Fletcher A. Vredenberg, Andy Action, Lapis Dust, Andrew Sternick, Vasily Kalaman, and Beckett Warren. Thank you so much for your support. We couldn't do the show without you. And coming up, episode 57 will be on Roger Zelazny's The Guns of Avalon. And episode 58 will be on Michael Moorcock's The Singing Citadel. Great. And Tim, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, man, guys, thanks yeah. for having me. So, <laughs> see you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed.